0: Well, good morning, Cornerstone. Good morning. Hi, Carrie. You are probably as shocked as I am to see me up here. <laughs> um, I don't think we're going to need that anymore. I don't think we're going to need that anymore. Yeah, thanks. So, this morning the um, the passage that we just heard is Ephesians 1 3 to 10 and I'm gonna be talking about the precious extravagance of sonship okay so what is a Christian I've gone and I've looked at stuff on the internet and everything and they've given me a lot of different definitions of the word and some of them are good some of them not so good you know, things like a Christian is a person that trusts in Jesus. A Christian is a person that believes that his sins are paid for uh, by the blood of Christ that is saved by grace. You know, so there's a, that, those are some of the better definitions that I've heard out there. But the one that I really like this morning is, um, is a definition given to us by a, a theologian. His name is... J.I. Packer. I'm sure many of you have heard of him. And he tells us the best definition of a Christian is a person that can call God his father. Now, I really love that definition because it kind of packs everything all in there and it just really gets to the to the brass tacks of everything. It gets to the the, the end result. And the end result is... We are adopted. We're adopted by God, um, and that's a that's that's a, a phrase that is that I really treasure for a number of reasons. You know, one being we have an adopted daughter. Um, but the 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 point of that of, of Packer saying that is that salvation, our justification, and our being saved by Jesus, the purpose of that is for sonship. The purpose of that is so that we can call God our Father. And this can only happen through adoption. This is so important because we always wanna talk about how God gives us grace and mercy We don't know who we are to God. If we don't know who we are to God, words like grace and mercy and even love, they're kind of abstract. We don't really know what those words really mean, like where the rubber meets the road. We don't, we don't really know that. Um, if we don't have a relationship with God, if we cannot call God our Father, we have a hard time understanding those things. Um, and, and therefore, we can't truly appreciate him in worship. The most pro- important question we must ever answer as created beings is, who is God? And uh, I think a lot of theology students uh, I always think that, while well, I was looking for Joe, is Joe around? Okay, um, Theology students might say God is What do they say? they say? They would say God is The only being in the universe Who does not derive His purpose for existence From another He is the only Uncreated being Is that right? Does that make any sense? Um So if we get that part right, the next most important question is, who does God say we are? In other words, what do we mean to God? I've already mentioned that we can't worship God if we don't understand the relationship with him. I mean, you can worship any pagan God without having a relationship with him, right? I don't think uh, uh, a wooden carved idol is going to get offended, in any way, right? Uh, but God, the living God, He seeks your heart in worship, and He will not have it. He will not have it any other way. But there's another reason we need to know who God says we we are, and that's basically a sanity check, right? Um, Our identity orients everything that we see and, I I mean, everything that we do and everything that we think. Most fundamental of all is we need to know how we fit into God's story. God doesn't fit into our story. We fit into God's story. And young people, if we get our true identity wrong, our lives will be grossly disordered as we exchange the worship of God for the worship of idols. So look at the person sitting next to you. What do you think is the most important, the most sacred aspect of that person? You you, you all know what that is. They are made in the image of God, right? We've heard that so many times. Everybody knows that. But what does that mean? The person sitting next to you is a intelligent person, because that person inherited their intelligence from God. The person sitting next to you loves, because he or she inherited the loving attribute from God. And the person sitting next to you is rational, is creative, and is wonderful because they inherited all these attributes from God. And to me, this is what it—this is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. They're capable of having true moral principles because God has true moral principles. So morality is not subjective, right? It, it comes from one standard and we all have that, whether we know it or not. God has indeed written his his very signature in, in, in that person's DNA. Now imagine that, because that, that's, that's a really amazing, humbling thing. Not even the mighty angels can say that. So how privileged we are to be made so wonderfully as to be made in God's image. But there's one way that we, one very important, very important way that man does not reflect the image of God today. And this is what we're really here to talk about. That way, that, that aspect is holiness. We don't have God's holiness. The man who thinks that his good works are sufficient to get into, to get into heaven, to earn his way into heaven, right? That person is too prideful to believe that. He thinks he can be holy enough to justify himself getting into heaven just through his own works. But the man who knows that his good works are filthy rags to God, he knows his sin and he knows his humility intimately. And thus his confidence lies outside of himself, and he knows that his only hope is to be counted righteous before an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of himself, a righteousness that can only come by the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. i got gonna pull up my verse here, sorry. Let's take a look at verse four. Um, I don't know if you guys can pull out your Bibles, pull out uh, Ephesians one. Um, take a look at verse 4. It says, Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. I'm sorry. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. God's intention was always to make us holy. Holy without blemish. That was always his his end goal, that was always his intention. And we'll get to why in a minute. But even during the Old Testament times, when we tried everything our own way, right? We built a tower up to the sky, well, the same tower that God said, let us look down, (laughs) bend down, look down, get get all the way down, and look at how puny that little tower is. But we looked at it and we said, hey, let's build a tower all, all the way up to the sky and see how glorious we can be. Uh, We looked to idols. We stoned the prophets of God. We made futile offerings which were a stench to God's nostrils. God sent his prophets to give Israel a true reason for hope. To look forward to the fullness of time when his plan was to be revealed in the form of His son Jesus. So that we would not only be made in his image but that we would accomplish his plan We would, I'm sorry, we would not accomplish his plan. We would complete his plan. He would have accomplished his plan, right? The plan is to make us holy and blameless before him. That is our desperate need, my brothers and sisters. And so the plan was, through the sacrifice of his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, We have been made worthy of adoption into God's family where we could have never been made worthy before. We have been given the gift of sonship, a reconciliation of the rebellious prodigal son. That's us. God's crossing of an infinite and and deep and dark chasm to rescue his lost sheep. Therefore, our hope and adoption is the resurrection. Is I'm sorry, is the restoration of a father-son relationship, as we had had in the garden when Adam was walking with God Himself in the cool of the day. But this time, the relationship would be on opposite ends of history, right? Adam and Eve were looking forward. They had. They were. They were naive. They don't. They didn't know what was going to happen when they disobeyed God. But we have the luxury of all of redemptive history up to this point, namely, really all we need is the Old Testament, right? Where we could see everything that went wrong. We're witnessing the result of man's quest for moral autonomy, saying, we don't need God to know what's good and what's bad, to to know what's right and what's evil. We don't need God for that. We can judge that on our own, thank you very much. We've witnessed the destructiveness of our subsequent rebellion after that, and the and and the relationship, the, the perfect and reliable love of God, who refuses to leave us to our just consequences, and that's why we're we're here today because God has took an interest in us. God is not that absentee father. God is a loving father. So this is where we need to stop for a minute and talk about what it means to call God Father in a slightly different way. Not everyone can call God Father. Father is a special name. It is a covenant name, a name that speaks to a relationship. Shouldn't it? Shouldn't the word Father guarantee a special relationship? shouldn't it imply a promise? Yes. And therefore, we are not all children of God. You might say we are all sons of God because God created us all in his image, but the Bible doesn't use that kind of language. Hebrews 12.8 tells us that the one who refuses the sweet uh, uh, discipline of God is not a son of God that person is illegitimate. That person cannot call God his father because he has refused his discipline. Rebels don't get to call God their father. But if we confess with our hearts that Jesus is our Lord and he is our savior, which is something only the Holy Spirit can move us to do, we become reconciled to the father through Jesus. Which means we're adopted into sonship and we become citizens of God's sovereign rule. What he calls the kingdom of heaven. Romans 3.23 famously said, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in our fallenness and, and rebellion, all of us have lost the privilege to call God our Father. I've already said that. We've made orphans of ourselves. And we've chosen our lawlessness and our disobedience over, over love and obedience to God. And, and God would not have that in his garden back, way back then, and he will not have it in his, kingdom, in, in, his, in his kingdom. All right. So what is adoption? This is what we're finally getting to. What is adoption? The ancient Romans practiced it. And as far as I know, and it has been the case ever since, that it means to give someone the privilege of the adopted family name and the status that was not theirs to begin with. That person who was adopted had no status before, but now they do. They share a family name, they share status, they share an inheritance. It was generally for the purpose of providing a son to a family who, uh, uh, who needed to perpetuate a bloodline. That was how it was before. You know, me, Shirley and I were thinking something else entirely. We, we just wanted to grow our family. And uh, I think the process took about twelve months, and during that time, we kept hearing more and more discouraging news. But I think that was only something that God had permitted to draw us closer to God, and so that every day we can we can um, go back to that well and and find the faith to 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 move on some of the the, the things that were said in a lot of the medical reports and, and a lot of other things were, were were really, were freaked us out a little bit. But we had a vision that I think God gave us that that child was going to be our, our little girl. And uh, God gave us the faith to move on, you know, so that's more like your, your heavenly father's purpose for adoption. Yes, he chose us before the beginning of the world, before we did anything good or bad. Yes, he has forgiven our sins through Jesus. Yes, he has lavished us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Yes, it makes us holy and blameless before him. Yes, it frees us from the bondage of sin and yes, it grants us admission into the kingdom of heaven and yes, as a child of God, he has an unimaginable inheritance waiting for you. But none of these things is his ultimate purpose. His purpose, which he set forth in Christ at a time that he deems the fullness of time, that is the moment that he saw fit to introduce Jesus Christ and the gospel to us. Um, that, that At that time, there was uh, already sufficient uh, uh, history of the Old Testament for us to understand, for us to learn, if we so choose, that God's ways are higher than our ways. And when it was a plan to unite all things in him, all things in heaven and all things on earth, that means to reconcile the lost back to their creator. Why? Three times we are told it is, um, it is to the praise of his glory and of the glory of his grace. Three times in verses three to 14, this is what we read. That's it, that's it. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Three times it says that, that's it. That's the, high, that's the highest purpose. The cre- that creation would see that God is not the God of the deists, that blind watchmaker, that, uh, that absentee father, Zeus, right? God, the father, are not those gods, small g. But rather, the living God is a God that loves his children, and though they were disobedient and sought, and, and, uh, sought their own way, he went after them. He went after us. So the final tally is that God gets all the glory in, 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 his, um, in, in his reconciling with the lost. And we get the blessing, the justification, the salvation, and most highest of all, the sonship. Do you think that's a fair deal? I don't know if it's a fair deal, but it's the best deal I can ever imagine. And infinitely better than I deserve. Something else to add about the nature of our adoption. Even before time began, even before the universe existed, He saw our future sin. He also saw our future good works. And you know what? His adoption of us was not contingent on any of it. None of it it mattered. That's not why God chose you. Why did God choose you? Romans nine tells us, that's not our business. Yeah, God didn't adopt, adopt you and I based on uh, um, the good and bad things we did, how little we sinned, how many accomplishments we had, how many old ladies we walked across the street, how cute we were as babies. Um, So praise God that your adoption does not depend on you. And that's good news, because it means you can't screw this up. It means you can't screw this up. And you can be confident that it is ironclad written in the blood of Christ, sealed with the blood of Christ. So that is adoption. And what is the end result? Sonship. The word adoption in the context of sonship only shows up three times in the New Testament. But it may be one of the most presumed concepts in the New Testament. Think of the Lord's Prayer. How do we address God? We address him, our Father in heaven. Our father in heaven. Who does this? What kind of a God does this? What kind of a, I mean, where do you, what kind of pagan God, what, what other religion has God as our father? The Muslims are offended by this. But for us, for the Christian, this is what makes everything Meaningful. That God is not this, this, this God that is so far away from us that he has no interest in you, that he does not who, know who you are. He has numbered the hairs on your head. I looked at Mike for a second there. <laughs> does anyone see the amazing privilege in that? You're not addressing some sky fairy like the atheists like to say. You are addressing your father who is more truly your father than any father that has ever, any other father that's ever lived. In fact, Packer says the highest of God's gift is adoption into the kingdom of God because justification frees us from the the threat of hell. Um, But after justification if that's all there is guess what we're still orphans we're still just we're still just orphans we're freed from hell but we're still orphans and we're orphans in a in a in a in a foreboding universe that outside of the place that god has made for us it is just darkness and death right there's We're just we're we're just not safe, all right. Sonship reconciles us and it returns us to the previous relationship we had with our Creator, it grants us incredible status as princes. We're, we're princes. Do you guys know that? Did you ever watch Narnia? We're, we're princes, man. We're we're princes and princesses, right? It grant it grants us an inheritance. Most of all. It allows us to call the God whom we had once made a mortal enemy our Father. And now, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about um, the the title that I gave this this uh, talk, right? This this sermon. Um, we can't truly a- appreciate how extravagantly. God has blessed his sons and daughters. We can't appreciate that unless we know what it is that we really deserve. And that's why the word adoption is important, because it reminds us that when we willfully severed our relationship with God through our own disobedience, he doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us anything. He has no legal obligation to us anymore. We are no longer his children. He can wash his hands of us. If God was to damn all of Adam's bloodline uh, to hell at the fall, okay, which he didn't do, we would have no legal uh, objection. There's nothing we can say about it. God owes us nothing. But he didn't damn us. He didn't even abandon us. The day that he rebuked the serpent and Eve and Adam, he cast them out of the garden. But at that same moment, Through those same words, his plan was set in place to ultimately reconcile the offspring of Adam and Eve to him through the death of his only begotten son. That was predicted, Genesis three. Friends, we are not left in despair for even one moment. That is extravagant. Despite what we did, we were not left in despair for one moment That is extravagant. God has tried to illustrate his promises to us through uh, parables and and, uh, 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 metaphors, right? The prophet Hosea was instructed to marry an unfaithful woman named Gomer. You guys know the story. When she left him, God instructed her to buy her back. Buy her back. from a house of prostitution. That's where he bought her back from. Who among us imagines that we're better than Gomer? Gomer, by the way, the metaphor is we're Gomer, right? We're, we're the ones that have exchanged um, the, the something of infinitely high value for something of no value or little value, namely our dignity for pleasure or money or whatever the case is. Who thinks we're better than Gomer? Who among us has not given our hearts to an idol of flesh or an idol of money or an idol of glowing rectangles? Think of how humiliating it would have been for a prophet of God to buy back his wife for 15 shekels and a bag of barley. Yet, what does Romans 5, 8 tell us that God did for us? Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. While we were, as C.S. Lewis likes to talk about, you know, we're in the enemy camp, right? We're We're the enemies of God we were actively fighting a war, an, an, illegitimate, an illegitimate rebellious war against the Holy Creator, right? Even while we did that, Jesus died for us. He didn't wait for you to turn back around and come back over to his side, which will never happen, by the way. But Jesus died for us while we were in active rebellion against him. Out of love, he suspended his own uh, uh, glory, um, his own dignity. Even, I would argue, his own justice suspended it, not permanently, you know, but in order to reach down into the, this cesspool of earth just to bring us back into the fold. Can you imagine doing that? That is extravagant. or the parable of the prodigal son. The boy basically told his dad, dad, you're gonna die soon anyway, so why not just give me half this money so you go out and party? And that's exactly what he did. And he partied it all the way. And soon he found himself sharing slop with a pig. But you know what? He knew he was guilty. He was guilty of dishonoring heaven Dishonoring his father, abusing his status as a son, and of squandering what he was given. And therefore, even in his desperation, he knew his guilt meant the best that he could hope for is to go back to his father and beg to be allowed to be a servant in his own home. But I want you to listen real carefully to what Luke fifteen twenty says. But when he was still a long ways off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. So not only did the father welcome him back, not only did the father forgive him, not only did the father uh, uh, throw him the biggest party and kill the nicest calf, the father glossed over the um, The lack of honor and dignity that he was given by the son. Possibly because his son was already repentant about it. But most importantly, the father reinstated the son's status as his son. The son was never going to have to be a servant. A servant is a servant. A servant has no interest, uh, has, has, does not take part, has no ownership of what he is a servant of. The son owns it. The father reinstated his status as a son. Not only that, the father acknowledged to his brother that, that he is a brother to his brother, that he's back to being a brother. That's right. <laughs> so... So those—that's the status. That's the—that's the important part. What kind of God would compare himself? Would 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 tell a parable of something, uh, you know, that that demeaning, that 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 lowers himself so much as to be a humble servant of the of of his creation that is waging a war against him. What kind of a God does that? I'll tell you what kind. This is what a perfect father looks like. This is what extravagance looks like. Again, we can only understand God's extravagance in light of what we deserve. Otherwise, we will begin to imagine what, that, that we've, we've earned it all. We, that we've, that, we've, that we, we did all this good stuff on our own. You know, that, that we can get holy on our own. But if we're honest, we've earned none of it. We don't get the credit for our, salve- our salvation or our sonship. This is why Paul repeats three times that the blessings of adoption are to the praise of the glory of his grace. Or thinking of Jesus pleading in Matthew 23, "O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to them. How often would I have gathered your children together like a hen gathers her brood, yet you were not willing. What has God failed to do to reach out to you and I? Given our sin, given our hard hearts, Given the fate that we deserve, God has lacked nothing. His response has been extravagant. Finally, what else can we say about being adopted as sons of the living God? Jesus tells us in Matthew seven, verses seven to 11, what sort of privilege sonship is like. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you give him a serpent? If you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father who is in heaven heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? Brothers and sisters, God's promises are extravagant. We can be confident that God hears us. Romans 8.32 says that if God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I want you to think about that for a second. If, if Will God give us Jesus, but withhold something greater? As if there's such a thing. Will God, will God do that? Does that make sense? If God gave us Jesus, what will he withhold from his children? Nothing that is good for us. If we get Jesus, we get everything, everything. That is extravagant. Okay, finally, finally. (laughs) It is not always a helpful comparison, but let's look at our own fathers. Up until college, I felt my dad was a very stoic man a person that had very little emotion. And all he was ever interested in was my academics, the prototypical Chinese dad. I didn't quite understand him very well, and even after he risked his life for me during an act of violence um, at a robbery when I was seven, I didn't really understand where he was coming from too much. But as I grew up, I I saw him as a man with few resources. He, He used to get up at like 5.30 in the morning, took the CTA bus to another CTA bus, which landed him at a restaurant where he worked as a prep cook making minimum wage. And that was what we lived on. We lived on what like it was like a seven an hour, seven bucks an hour, whatever it was he he was making. But I will never forget that the, the one thing that was remarkable about my dad was he made me feel secure. Not once did I ever, not once was I ever worried about whether we were going to get kicked out of our house or where the next meal was going to come from. I, I, I never had any worries about that. I did find it odd that they never, my mom and my dad never really got within six inches of each other, but that's also the prototypical Chinese thing. Um, he had sacrificed all he had for my good, he homeschooled me in math and in Chinese and in probably a million other things if he could speak English. And I, I, I no longer resent him for the um, hours of mind-numbing uh, math assignments that he made me take, that with the supplemental math that he made me take throughout the summer breaks. Um, or the, having to learn calculus over the summers when I was in high school. I, I don't, I, I've, I've forgiven him for that. <laughs> This taught me a little bit about what the privilege of sonship is like. Sacrifice, good counsel, teaching, those were the qualities I saw in my dad. But I don't think you need to have a good earthly father to believe in a good heavenly father. Because the best fathers out there are still pale imitations of your father in heaven. Brothers and sisters, I really look forward to that day on the other side of life when our eyes are truly fully opened and we can see everything as it is. Right now, we see everything through a, a, a glass darkly, right? But one day, we're going to see everything in whole. And on that day, God will wipe away our tears. And keep in mind, a good father does not forsake his kids, and that alone assures us that when he calls us, he has preserved us, no matter how we stray, no matter how prodigal we become one day. Verse 10 says that the Holy Spirit, which dwells in our hearts, is the guarantee of that promise. We have a guarantee. We have a guarantee. When God is our Father, we have a guarantee. It's rock solid. And again, it's not based on us. It's not based on what we do. But remember though that if we start playing games with this guarantee, I will have to uh, point you guys to Pastor Calvin's sermon uh, regarding shall we sin so grace may abound, right? I believe that those who see the beauty of the consummation of God's plan to bring us into sonship can best serve God. Because if we don't see the Father as his giver of unspeakable, extravagant gifts for his children, and if we don't yearn for the unimaginable joy of eternal fellowship with Jesus... What is our obedience for? Shall we devote our lives to merely keeping the terminal patient comfortable as much as p- possible before he dies without the gospel? Is that it, is that all we have? Is, is that what God has called us to do? Or should we live in celebration that we are given the riches of his grace today and promised every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in the age to come, to the praise of his glorious grace. Thank you.